St. James. Welcome to 1030 service. Glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to the people watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you guys are worshiping with us as well. Uh, do me a favor and read through the notices whenever you get a chance. Uh, there's some good stuff in there. Trivia night coming up, uh, the card shower. Um, point out here that we got uh, confirmation classes on for today at the end of this worship service. Tuesday morning men's Bible study, Saturday morning women's Bible study. Some, uh, some, some of you have been asking me about the Wednesday night um, study on Zoom. Uh, we just got done finished before Christmas working through the, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I think that that's just going to be a C.S. Lewis thing from here on out. So if you want to read through uh, The Great Divorce, sometime in February, we're going to start reading through The Great Divorce together and then getting together on Wednesday nights via Zoom and discussing Lewis's The Great Divorce. So if you're interested in that, grab a copy of it, like order a copy of it. And then when we get closer to um, maybe in a couple weeks, two or three weeks, uh, let me know if you want to be involved, and I'll get you the Zoom invite, and then we can do that together on Wednesday evenings. I think that's all I have uh, for announcements. Stand with me and let me pray for us, and then we will get into worship. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning and that you would give yourself to us. Uh, you know how ignorant we are, and you know how wayward we are. Uh, you know what we need and, and all those good things we're asking you for. But most of all, Father, we need you. We need your presence. We need you to come here this morning and personally be with us. God, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. We're praying that you would come and give us yourself this morning in your word and at your table. Glorify your name through what you're gonna do uh, in and through our lives because of what we experience of you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God our Father, holy and merciful God. In your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. No wrongs we have done.
is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 is the epistle reading. It's about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first uh, three verses here are about what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's main job is to connect us to Jesus. He's going to make a comment about idolatry here that I'm going to get to in just a second. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you why he mentioned idolatry there, because a common pagan notion is, is that different Different gods, different goddesses, different idols gave different benefits, different favors, different ways to connect to reality. And what Paul's going to argue in these next verses, 4 to uh, verse 11, is that everything that you need as a human being is given to you just by one spirit. You don't have to go tap into all different sorts of idols, all different sorts of ways. I mean, one of the ways that if I was going to preach this, which I'm not going to right now, one of the ways I would preach this is that there are different places in our culture that offer themselves up as objects to worship, and you have to go to those places in order to get that part of your life satisfied. So if you want to be you know, financially prosperous, you've got to like worship at the altar of your work. If you want to be relationally happy, you've got to worship at the altar of um, attractiveness or being in shape or whatever it is. What Paul is saying is everything that we need for life comes from one spirit, provides all the gifts we need. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Did you guys catch the reference to the Trinity there? Spirit, verse 4, Lord, that is Jesus, verse 5, God, probably the Father, in verse 6. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 2. Glory to you, O Lord. So the wedding of Cana story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And didn't know where it came from, 
though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. I'm going to read Esther 3 in just a minute. Let me, so it's been a couple weeks, so let me set us up here real quick if I can, and then we're going to read it in a second. Uh, so we're, we're, on Sunday mornings, we're working through the book of Esther here, and one of the reasons is that Esther has a lot to say about what it means to live as a Christian in a culture where God isn't present, which is a way, uh, um, I mean, a way our culture sometimes appears to us now. It's, it appears to be a culture where God isn't present. One of the ways that Esther makes this clear, Esther is a book where the sovereignty of God, his love and control for his people, and his plan of redemption is super evident, but God's name doesn't appear one time in the book of Esther. He's not mentioned at all. The temple's not mentioned, the Bible's not mentioned, the covenant's not mentioned. And the, the author of Esther, what she or he is trying to do is emphasize this is the way that God works powerfully in a context that doesn't recognize him. And so we live in a context like that. I thought, let's read the book of Esther and study it together. But let me go back to Esther 1 and kind of reset up what we've been, where we've been at. To go back even farther than that, God calls Israel to be his people, to be his agents through which he's going to bring redemption to the entire creation. He calls his people to be that way. They fall, and for those of you who've been in the adult Bible study, we've been reading through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27, God warns his people that if you rebel against me, I'm going to kick you out of your land and put you in a land that you don't know, and I'm going to put you under the thumb of rulers who don't know you or your God, which is what happens. 586 BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire blows up Jerusalem, takes them into exile. When we get to the book of Esther, it's about 120 years after that. Now the Persians are in charge. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Esther might be the last book written in the Old Testament, 
It's definitely the historical events of Esther are the closest to the New Testament of any other events there. God's people living in exile in the land of Persia because they've disobeyed him. God still is watching out for them, though, as they live in that pagan context. One of the ways that that happens is the book of Esther. At any rate, uh, King Ahasuerus, who uh, sometimes in Greek sources is called Xerxes, and I- I'm, gonna, I'm totally going to mess this up, and I'm going to call him Xerxes sometimes, and I'm going to call him Ahasuerus sometimes, and you're just going to have to like, like do what you usually do and sort of translate what I'm saying into like truth. It's, it's the same guy, just uh, one of his, uh, one of, it's two different ways to spell his name depending on how you spell his name. Ahasuerus is, at this time, Ahasuerus is the most powerful guy in the whole world because Ahasuerus is the emperor of, up to this point, the biggest empire in the history of the world, the Persian Empire. That makes Ahasuerus the most powerful person that the world has ever known. Chapter one finds Ahasuerus flexing. He wants everybody to know this. He throws a massive 180-day party for all of his muckety-mucks. And he shows off. They're laying down on couches of gold, drinking expensive wines, and eating expensive foods, and uh, looking at expensive scenery. And, and, he, and he's basically flexing. He's basically saying, I'm the most powerful man in the world. There, there's a, you know, the, why does he do this? Is because that's what powerful people do, is they flex. They want everybody to know that they're powerful. They want everybody to know that if you want access to power, you've got to come through me because I am the dispenser of power. So for 180 days, he throws this massive party. Seven more days, he throws a party for everybody who's a citizen of that particular city, the city of Susa. And at the end of that seven days, drunk, he decides, I'm going to get my trophy wife out here and tell her to parade around so everybody can see her. And she says, no, I'm not doing it. And he's furious. And you all know why he's furious, because the whole point of the party is to flex. And now his wife won't even do what he's telling her to do. So he's furious. Uh, he's kind of a buffoon. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. He's, for the most powerful man in the universe, he doesn't make great decisions. He has a hard time making the decisions that he does. He has a group of young counselors who come to him and say, hey, look, we can't have your wife doing this. Because if your wife starts telling you no, then our wives are going to start telling us no, and they're going to say, well, Vashti does it. And so you need to pass a law, and the law goes like this. Vashti is no longer allowed to come into your presence. And he says, well, that's a good idea. Let's have her, uh, let's kick her out. Let's put her in the harem or wherever it is he was going to put her. And then we're going to have a contest. We're moving into chapter two. Now we're going to have a contest, and we're going to find all the most beautiful virgins in the Persian Empire. And we're going to ship them here. And we're going to put them in a harem, and we're going to give them cosmetics, and we're going to feed them and give them uh, fancy clothes. And then one by one, these virgins are going to come and sleep with you, one per night, until you make your way all the way through them. And then you can decide which one of these women makes you the most happy, and we'll call her the number one woman in your harem now. We'll call her the queen. And... uh, uh, Xerxes, Asher says, okay, that's a great idea. And he sends the people out to do that. Esther gets taken in this group of beautiful virgins who are going to be forced to have sex with this pagan king. We're not told in Esther 2 what Esther's emotional response to this is. It's kind of left to the imagination. But I mean, we can only guess that it was uh, horrific, right? She's being kidnapped from her the place where she lives, and taken and put in this guy's harem where he's basically going basically to rape her. And she, she gets put into here. In chapter 2, we see her go into this harem. And um, one more thing happens in chapter 2, and that is uh, her uncle Mordecai, who is there in Susa to kind of watch over her, uh, keep an eye on her. He happens to hear in passing, or well, actually, we don't, we don't know. We we don't know if he heard it or if somebody told it to him. He discovers that there's two guys who are plotting to assassinate Xerxes. And he reports these two guys to the proper authorities. There's a trial. It's discovered that they are plotting to assassinate Xerxes. And these two guys are hanged. Uh, It says they're hanged uh, by a tree. That could be crucifixion. The Persians invented crucifixion. It could be impaled on a stake. At any rate... um, he saves the king's life. This is a common problem in the ancient world. Is, uh, if you're a king, always watching your back because people were trying to assassinate you. 
In fact, uh, you don't need to know this. This isn't edifying at all. But Xerxes is going to meet his end a couple decades from now because two of his servants are going to plot against him and assassinate him. The guy who's kind of in charge of like household security is in on the plot, lets the assassins in at night, and they come up to his bedroom and murder him there. That's how Xerxes is going to end his life. So this is not... uh, it's not something probably that he's, uh, he probably takes it seriously, but it's probably something he deals with quite a bit. That brings us to chapter three. Okay, now I'm going to do now is I'm going to read chapter three that's in the bulletin in front of you. I'll probably try to make a few points, talk about it, and then I'm going to preach a real short sermon on the backside of this reading and kind of just sum up where we're at. Because um, chapters one, two, and three are all sort of setting us up for the big reversals that start to happen in chapter four and five. Uh, so come back next week and it'll be a little bit more... Um, We'll get into the narrative where some of the good stuff starts happening. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, now we don't know necessarily who Haman is, but let me make two, two quick comments about this. First of all, at the end of chapter two, I know you're not looking at this if you have your bulletin in front of you. At the end of chapter two, it's Mordecai who exposes the plot to assassinate Xerxes. It's Mordecai. Very next word, very next line, Haman gets promoted. It's not the way this story is supposed to go. It's like Mordecai should be getting kudos for this. But instead, Haman gets promoted. We're not told why Haman gets promoted or why Ahasuerus likes him. Again, it's not important to the story. And so the, uh, the author leaves it out. We are told that it's an Agagite. What are Agagites? Uh, a descendant of King Agag. I don't expect, do you guys remember this? Agag the Amalekite who was one of, when Saul was the king, Agag the Amalekite was one of the main guys who was determined to destroy Israel. And now here we find one of his descendants. Several hundred years later, same thing. This guy's main determination is going to be to destroy Israel, Haman is. And so Haman's a bad guy. The son of Hamadatha, uh, Xerxes advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Okay, so people, everybody's supposed to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Why? Because Xerxes said so. We don't know exactly like what got Haman in good with Xerxes, but we do know that Haman's power and authority was not his. It wasn't any sort of like authority that was flowing out of his personality or his job description. People had to be told by the king, I'm commanding you guys to bow down to Haman. And so that's what people did. But, end of verse uh, 2, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king, we'll talk about why in just a second, or why not, I should say. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. So that's probably the best reason we're going to get from the story. Why would, why would Mordecai not bow down? Because he was a Jew. Did he know? Did he know that the Agagite was determined to destroy the Jews? And he wasn't going to have any part in it? I, I don't know. The, the narrator doesn't tell us if this was a good decision or a bad decision. It just says Mordecai refused to bow down. Verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman, once again, we have a guy who there's one person who won't do what they tell him to do, and he's furious. He's furious. Again, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There are things that happen in this world that should make you angry, but... Typically, day to day, let's say 97% of the time, the things that make you, your anger, my anger, is a symptom of some idol that's being challenged. I get angry when something I, something where I, I place my identity in something happening or something being true, and that's challenged. That's what makes me angry. My kids back talking me makes me angry because I'm in charge of them. They're not supposed to do that. Somebody in an elders meeting saying, no, Aaron, we disagree with you. That makes me angry because I want to be in charge, right? Anger typically is a response to idolatry. Same thing for Haman and Ahasuerus. They, they, they worship power. And when something happens to undermine that, the response, of course, is anger because one of their gods has been challenged. In the first month, oh, so by the way, too, th- this is almost like fairy tale-ish, this 
This guy gets mad and he decides, I'm going to destroy everybody in this guy's ethnic group. Um, I, it would be a whole lot easier to, to, to be like, that's just kind of weird, before like the 1930s in Europe, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's happened within living, every single person in here, well, I shouldn't say every single person in here, a lot of you know people who were alive during the 1930s, a lot of you know people who fought in World War II and in Europe. Uh, it, it's within living memory that somebody decided, let's wipe out the Jews in, in their entirety. This is not some sort of like, historically weird thing. It's happened to the Jews quite a bit. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, that's uh, roughly Aprilish, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, oh, uh, time stamp here, Esther, Esther, Esther comes to, uh, Esther is raised to the role of queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus. This is the 12th year. So there's been a five-year gap here between chapters two and chapters three. Again, the narrator, the, the point isn't to tell Esther's life story. The point is to tell the story of this particular version of God's redemption. And so the narrator is leaving, not including everything, just what's, what's important to the story. In the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. That is, they cast lots. Poor, that's, uh, so I, I realize that for some of you who are bored by like historical references, you're, you're just going nuts right now. I apologize. I'll, like, let, let me know. I'll, I'll change my ways, I promise. Poor is just dice. A poor, you know, um, six-sided die with numbers, dots on them indicating the numbers one through six. That's millennia and millennia and millennia old. What Haman is doing is he's casting poor. He's casting the, 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 the dice. Why didn't the, why didn't the translators use the word dice? Why did they use the word poor? Well, simply because the, the, Esther's going to give us the festival of Purim, Purim, uh, which Jews celebrate roughly in March. Purim, if you, if, in Hebrew, if you add I am to the end of a word, it makes it plural. The festival of the dice is what this is. And um, um, more on how that turns out later on in the story. But they're gonna ca- he's going to cast poor because that's what you do. He's looking for his lucky number. When's the best date to wipe these people out? So uh, uh, where are we at here? Uh, poor, verse 7. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That's Marchish. And so you can see what's happened. They've cast the dice to get the lucky numbers, and it's turned out that the lucky day to slaughter the Jews is going to be 12 months from now. So there's going to be a one-year window between the announcement that the Jews are going to die 12 months from now and the day when they're planning on uh, executing, that, executing that order. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad. Haman's not going to even say the name of the Jews. And Ahasuerus, because he's kind of a bumbler, more on that in a minute, isn't even going to ask. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. That's a truckload of money. 10,000 talents of silver. We know from Persian records, that's, that's roughly two-thirds of Persia's annual income, the entire empire's annual income. How does he plan on doing this? Well, uh, almost certainly he's going to, we'll see later on in this chapter, the plan is to seize the Jews' property and give it to the state. Kind of what happened to the Jews in the 1930s, right? We destroy the Jews, we take their property, we take their houses, we, take their, we seize their bank accounts, we seize their art, whatever it is. It's the same thing he's planning on doing. And, and Haman's saying, I can make us 10,000 talents of silver um, if we do this. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. That's a symbol of power. Whatever gets stamped with the king's signet, re- signet ring is official business. The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you. Here's the resources. The people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Go do whatever you want to do. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Okay, well, let's talk about this again. This is a setup for the bad stuff happening. This is the conflict here, right? Is uh, Haman's determined to destroy the Jews. That's going to be the conflict that kind of controls the rest of the story. Let's think real quick here about our main characters. And there's lots of side characters that we could talk about. But our main characters, we basically have three types of main characters here. The first type is the secondarily evil. The secondarily evil. And Ahasuerus falls into this. Ahasuerus is an evil guy. But here's what I mean by secondarily evil. Is that his primary goal isn't to be evil. His primary goal isn't to destroy. His primary goal is to flex his power. And to flex his power in order to make money. And to have sex with as many women as possible. That's his goal. In order to accomplish those goals, he does evil, destructive things. And I'm, I, so what I'm not saying is that the secondarily evil guy is not as evil as the primary evil guy. They, they both do the same evil things. What I am saying, though, is that his main goal is he's kind of a bumbler. He's not really trying to, he's not really trying to hurt anybody. You know, but he's determined that he's, he's in charge and he's going to get what he wants. And as a result, his wife gets uh, locked up in a harem. As a result, all these women from all over the kingdom are taken from their homes and sexually assaulted. So you see what I mean? He is definitely evil. But his point isn't to destroy. His point is, I'm king and I can do what I want. And what happens as a result of that is people get hurt. Destruction happens. This is what he does. And he's going to do this all, you know, one of his advisors comes in and says, hey, I'd like to wipe out everybody of a particular ethnic group. Never mind which one. I just like that. And he's like, well, okay, go ahead and do it. Who knows why? Maybe because it turns him on to like show off to Haman that I can give you the power to do that. Who knows why? But he does tons of damage. He's evil, but he's secondarily evil. And like I said, he's kind of a, he's kind of a buffoon. He's, he, he gets manipulated a lot by his younger counselors. He loses his temper over a wife issue. I mean, this is the most powerful man in the world at the time. He, when he wants to tell his wife what to do, this is kind of a funny part. There's lots of comedy in chapter one of Esther which doesn't really come out too much. He sends seven eunuchs to go tell his wife what to do. Like he can't control his wife, but he'll send these seven eunuchs, if you, let for, if you have ears to hear. Uh, he sends seven eunuchs to do the job for him. He's really kind of a buffoon. He's evil, but he's not really trying to be evil. He just is, kind of flows out of his idolatry. Haman, on the other hand, is primary evil. And what I mean by that is Haman's goal is to destroy Haman does evil. He does the same thing Ahasuerus does, but his goal is actually to destroy. The destruction is his goal. It's not a byproduct of what he wants to do. It's his goal. There are people, I mentioned Hitler a minute ago. There are people, like, there are Hitlers in the world. I mean, thank God, not frequently in charge of an entire country with a huge, massive army and air force and navy behind them. But there's lots of people in the world who do destructive things because they like to be destructive, because they like to destroy. And this is just kind of a weird thing. I, uh, I came to church this morning and like popped on my computer, opened up the internet, and like the, my Yahoo news feed pops up. And one of the first things is like these kids that get arrested. I'm not even gonna tell you what's going on, but because uh, it's just horrible. These kids get arrested for like torturing this animal. They torture and kill an animal, and it was discovered. And these kids get arrested. Well, why would you do that? Like if, if, like if I would just let my Yahoo news feed scroll, there'd be like four or five of these things, worse than an animal. Like there was this Spanish teacher that I think somewhere up in Michigan who two of her students killed her because they said, you know, it was just like what they wanted to do. Like this is like intentional evil. So when we, when we face evil, frequently it's one of these two things. I'm not saying that, again, one's not better, one's not worse. They're both evil. Ahasuerus is the buffoon. Haman is the one who's intentionally trying to destroy, and Ahasuerus becomes his tool. Ahasuerus is a tool through the whole thing. He's a tool of his wife. He's a tool of his counselors. He's a tool of Haman. Thanks be to God, he ends up being a tool of Esther. <laughs> like, that's how God is going to rescue, spoiler alert, that's how God's going to rescue Israel. But he ends up being a buffoon. Okay, so these two, here's the third type of person, the good people. Now, I'm not saying that Mordecai and Esther 
never did anything wrong. I'm not saying they're not sinners, but in the story, they're portrayed as good, right? This isn't about like salvation by grace and not by works. We can talk about that at some other point. That's a good thing to talk about. Esther and Mordecai are pictured as the pure ones, the, the noble ones, the good ones. But the problem with them is they're helpless. They're helpless. They don't have any cachet. They can't rescue anybody. Esther is a woman whose main job is to have sex with the king whenever he demands it. That's what she does. Mordecai just stands in the gate. He has zero political, he's not even a bureaucrat. He just stands in the gate. These people are completely helpless. And when we look at our world, I think we finally, we, a lot of times, this is what we see, is we see bad people who have power, and we see good people who are helpless. I think that the story that Esther tells is a fairly common story. I think it's very, very rare to see the good people with the power and the bad people helpless. In fact, if, like if you read through the Psalms, the Psalms are all about this. Like God, the wicked rage. God, why are the rich happy? Why are they prosperous? Why are they in charge when I serve you and I'm downtrodden and I'm on the run? Like, God, please rescue me. This is kind of the way of the world. Esther is a microcosm of the way things just typically work. But the good news is, moving on here quickly, the good news is, is that God wins. We'll look at the details in the upcoming week. But just suffice to say that God's gonna end up winning this story. Evil looks like it's in charge. Evil looks like it's powerful, and the good looks like it's helpful, but God always wins. Now, check this out. I told you this uh, two weeks ago. There are three stories in the Old Testament that are all almost identical narratively. It's the story of Joseph, the story of Daniel, and the story of Esther. Here's one of God's people. In each, in each story, one of God's people is taken against their will to a foreign land as a slave, a nobody, no power at all, and God uses them to grab the day and win it for the kingdom. And through, actually, through pure, through pure grace, not through any sort of like individual gifts of theirs, but through pure grace. And in each case, we'll, we'll look more at the, at the parallels as we go along, but in each case, it's the most powerful empire in the world. When Joseph is in Egypt, Egypt is at the time the most powerful empire in the world, which means that the Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. When uh, Daniel is in Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian Empire is the most powerful empire in the world, and that means Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. Here in the book of Esther, the Persians are now the biggest empire in the history of the world up to that time, and that makes Xerxes the most powerful emperor in the history of the world. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that God is pointing out, God wants you to know that he is ultimately in charge, that when you look around, you see the political powers that be with all the authority. You see the bad guys in charge, but God always goes after the bad guys and beats them subversively. There's no armies raised in any one of these three stories. He does it with three slaves. There's no political maneuvering. There's no backdoor coup of the emperor. God miraculously uses these three slaves. But it's interesting, too, interesting parallel here. In each three of those stories, each three of those characters becomes the second most powerful person in the empire. So here's the most powerful empire in the world, the Egyptian empire. Joseph goes down as a slave. He's actually in prison, falsely accused, falsely accused of rape and in prison. By the end of the story, he's the prime minister of Egypt, right? Same thing happens to Daniel. Daniel is taken as a slave into the Babylonian empire to work as a minor bureaucrat. By the end of the story, Daniel, prime minister of Babylon. Same thing here. Esther is a slave. She's living in the harem. By the end of the story, Esther is actually the most powerful person in the whole story. But in case you missed it, if you, go to, if, if, if you go to chapter 10, Mordecai, her uncle, it explicitly says Mordecai was named the prime minister of Persia and was the second, second most powerful person. Why is that important? Because God is going to win. God is going to undermine and subvert all of man's attempts to be in charge, all of man's attempts to gratify itself with power, all of man's attempts to, in his power, gratify his idols of money, sex, and power. God is going after those things, and he always wins. And there's lots of good comfort for us who live in a culture where God doesn't exist, because God's always there. You, 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 can, like, you can get rid of God. You can even spend a whole book not naming his name. His sovereignty is way too powerful. It's going to overcome. Ultimately, though, the, the, where these stories are headed, right, is somebody who's more powerful than 
Pharaoh, way more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, way more powerful than Xerxes, is when we get to Jesus' day, Augustus Caesar, the most powerful man over the most powerful empire in the history of the world. The empires keep getting bigger. The emperors keep getting more strong. But God's going to overthrow him, and he's going to do it with the son of a construction worker. Jesus is going to die because that's what gets rid of the power of the bad guys. How does that work? What's the worst thing? What's the worst thing that Haman can do to you? What's the worst thing that Pharaoh can do to you? What's the worst thing that Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar can do to you? The worst thing that Caesar could do to you was crucifixion. The worst thing he could do was to take your life in the most painful way possible. And Jesus takes that punch. Like um, Muhammad Ali, who, who did he fight in the rope-a-dope battle? Any boxing fans in here? Do you remember the, 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 the fight where uh, Muhammad Ali was fighting George Foreman? Maybe? I don't know. It's probably wrong. And he, 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 he did the, uh, the, the rope-a-dope technique. He just stood there and took punch after punch and, and didn't, he just covered up. He didn't fight back. And like four or five rounds in, his opponent is just wasted. And then Ali comes out firing. He took the best punch. Jesus takes the best punch. Crucifixion. That's the last card he taxes. Let's see if that'll, let's see if that'll subjugate them. We'll put a regiment of soldiers in their, in their district. Let's see if that'll subjugate them. Here's Caesar playing all of his cards to get all the power. The last card he's got is crucifixion, and Jesus trumps it. Jesus takes the best punch he's got and gets back up and wins. God always wins. Suffering can't win. God always wins. Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead in order to, in order to put, put down all the bad kings in the history of the world. It's a huge theme in the Bible. I'm gonna, I'm, let me shoot some proof text at you real quick here. Daniel 2.21. Daniel says this in chapter 2. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. You look at the bad, the, the big bad political people, the big bad economic leaders, and you think, there's nothing we can do. No, it's God who removes them and God who sets them up. Ultimately, God is in charge of all of them. Psalm 72. This is about the Messiah. May the Messiah have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The book of Psalms is edited and collated during the Babylonian exile. And here they are saying, our Messiah is someday going to be the king of all your all's kings. All the bad guys are someday going to be drug in and forced to kneel before our king. Just a little tiny slave people saying this. Esther knows it though. Mordecai knows it. They know that God can't be beaten. Psalm 82, verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Isaiah 60, verse 1, this is a, uh, Isaiah is singing to the city of Jerusalem. Arise, shine, for your light has come, Jerusalem, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus wins. He owns all the nations and all the bad guys in the world will someday be forced to bend the knee, either willingly or unwillingly. Jesus always wins. Take comfort. Let me give you a takeaway. Three quick things and we'll be done. What can Christians now today, and again, it's going to get better in ch chapters four and following, but what can Christians take away from seeing Ahasuerus and see Haman, Haman kind of staggering around trying to do what they want to do and being thwarted by this slave girl who lives in this harem? Three things. First of all, Christians, I don't know if this is Christians all over the world, but American Christians definitely, sometimes we put too much weight on those who have political power. Sometimes we put too much hope in the politicians we want to be in charge, and we have too much fear over the politicians who are in charge, who we, who we know are bad people. Too much hope, too much fear. We give messianic hope and fear. We give messianic, godlike reverence to the powers that be politically. And we should just stop it. Now, this is totally not a commercial for being disengaged politically. It's totally not a commercial. Like, I'm not saying that you should never speak truth to power. That's not what I'm saying. But as far as your own personal hopes and fears, those belong to Jesus alone, not to the political powers that be. It always looks like nothing can change, that these people are completely in control. But God raises up kings and God puts down kings. And he does it the way he likes to do it, subversively. 
through slave guys, slave girls, through a Jewish construction worker. Don't put your hope in them, put your hope in Jesus. Don't get too excited when the good guys are in. Don't get too uh, down when the bad guys are in. Two more things. First of all, favor, favor. There's another parallel that Joseph and Daniel and Esther all have, and that is that it says consistently that they found favor in the eyes of their overlords. They found favor in the eyes of their overlords. Joseph finds favor with Potiphar. In Genesis chapter 39, Joseph finds favor with Potiphar as he's working for him in his house. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of rape. He's thrown in prison. It's not long before the, 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 the jailer. Joseph finds favor in the jailer's eyes. Daniel 2 finds favor in Daniel chapter 1, verse 9. Daniel finds favor in the guy who's the head of Daniel's team of bureaucrats. And the guy's willing to do whatever Daniel wants him to do in terms of like uh, diet and habits and things like that. Esther, it says three times in chapter 2 that Esther finds favor. In Esther 2, verse 9, it says that she finds favor in the eyes of Haggai, who is the eunuch who's in charge of the first harem that she's put into. In, um, in verse 15, she finds favor uh, in, the eyes of, um, in the eyes of the king. Uh, when she is uh, forced to sleep with him for that night, she finds favor in his eyes. Uh, in verse 17, uh, the king loves Esther more than all the women, and she wins grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he sets the royal crown on her head. Now, I would, this is hard to talk about because uh, it, we'll get to this later on in the story as well. Because one thing that's different is that Joseph, Daniel, and Esther all come at it with different tax. There's not like a strategy for how to live like this. Joseph is very much, um, Joseph is very much faithful in worship. Daniel is faithful in morality. Esther, we're not really told a lot of what she does. She's just kind of, she, she is who she is in the presence of the king. And can I do this? I, I know we're getting near the end of the sermon. Give me 30 seconds to do this sermon real quick here. And I should have done this uh, com commercial, I mean. Uh, real quick, I should have done this earlier. A lot of people will say, why doesn't Esther just say no? That's wrong. I'm not going to sleep with the king. Well, so Esther doesn't really have, she doesn't have that card to play. In the world that she lives in, the sexual assault of women by men with power is a given. Like her option is this or death. It's almost suicide by the king's officers if she decides not to do this. It's hard to judge her. Like there's really no options available to her. Here's the second thing a lot of people ask, again real quick. Why doesn't, this seems horrible, sexual assault. Why does anybody in here say this is bad? Why doesn't the Bible say this is wrong? It just happens. Well, because the Bible, the Bible is a story. It shows that it's wrong. It shows the broken situation. Stuff happens bad in the Bible. David also takes a bunch of women. He collects women. Nobody ever comes in and says in the story, now, hey, kids at home, don't do this. Just one wife for each one of you guys, one husband for each one of you girls. Don't collect women. Instead, the story just shows how screwed up David's life is because he does this. The story shows how screwed up Ahasuerus' world is because he lives like this. Right? So it's, it's in the story that you get to see the brokenness of this. But favor, they all, get, they all gain favor. Now, why is this important? I, I think that Christians a lot of times, I know I do, I feel like if I'm going to live faithfully in this culture, in a godless culture, I've got to be as repulsive as possible. I've got to be the real stick in the mud. I've got to be obnoxious. I've got to be, I got to be rude. I've got to let people know that I disagree. But, but when we see Joseph and Daniel and Esther, we see them totally living lives of truth, but living lives of service for the, for the pagans around them in such a way that, that, that each one of them becomes indispensable to the kingdom. I think that we as Christians need to, to, to do a better job of, if I say curry favor, it means the wrong thing, right? But we need to do a better job of living lives that would gain favor with those around us. I'm not saying compromise. Joseph, Daniel, and Esther don't compromise, but they do love. They do live lives of service to the pagans around them. We don't need to be ugly. We don't need to be obstinate to be truthful people. We don't need to be jerks, and, and, and too frequently are. Last thing, and then I'll be done. How does God work through Joseph, Daniel, and Esther? It's, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's the way that God always works. He works through suffering. That's the paradigm that he set up by sending Jesus to suffer. God himself is a sufferer. 
God himself knows what it's like to die. God himself knows what it's like to be lynched. And when God works, he typically works through the suffering, through our suffering connected to the cross. Look at Joseph. Joseph's sold by his brothers into slavery. He's falsely accused of rape and he's thrown into prison. He's forgotten by his friends. That's how God uses Joseph. Look at Daniel. I mean, Daniel ends up in a lion's den for Pete's sake, right? This is not, this is not sort of like politics 101 here. Look at Esther. Esther is taken from her family and systematically raped. I say systematically because the system approves of it and validates it. And all these things are wrong. Slavery is wrong. Throwing people to lions is wrong. That's, you can write that down. That's, if that's your takeaway from the sermon, then oh, good. Uh, sexual assault is wrong. And yet God's grace and power is big enough to work through all. And doesn't make it right, right? What does, Joseph, you know, what does Joseph say when his brothers say, his brothers come and ask for forgiveness? Joseph says, you sold me into slavery. That's evil. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Joseph doesn't say, it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Because God used it, so it must have been okay. No, Joseph says, it's evil. You meant it for evil. But God's sovereign grace and love is powerful enough to use it for good. This is what happens on the cross. The kingdoms of the world crucify God himself. They meant it for evil. And yet God used that same event to rescue them and rescue us. God uses suffering. So whatever it looks like us living in the world today, living in a godless world, it's going to include suffering. But do it with hope. Do it with comfort. Do it because you know the gospel is true. And our suffering is not failure, but it's God's victory over the powers that be by the power of his son on the cross. Stand with me and let's pray. Then we'll have communion. Father, we thank you and love you for being such a good God. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the testimony of Joseph and Daniel and Esther and Father, may we read that, may, may, as we read their stories over the next few weeks, may you convince us afresh that you, sovereign God, are completely in control of all things, that you are working out good, that you are bringing your new creation into existence by the power of your Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of your Son. Help us not to lose sight of that. Help us not to lose hope when it appears that you don't exist in this culture. Help us not to lose hope when it appears that the evil, the secondarily evil and the primary evil people have all the power but help us know that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can use our suffering to bring about your kingdom through the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. God, I pray that you this morning would be with everyone who is struggling with health issues right now, lots of our uh, people with COVID, that you would be with everyone who's struggling with uh, mental health issues and relationship brokenness and financial worries and and all those things, Father, that you would bring hope and comfort and healing to all of us. I pray again, especially, uh, Father, this week that you would be with Bob and Majel and that you'd be with um, the Allens and you'd be with Alex and that you would give them hope and comfort. Just show them yourself. Show them yourself as loving and good and sovereign in a powerful way in the upcoming weeks. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with all of our sister LCMS churches in the area. And that as your word is proclaimed and as your people celebrate your sacrament this morning, that your glory would be revealed, that people would come to know and love you. And as your praises are sung, that, that your heart would be turned towards your people and that you would give all of us grace. I pray for every Bible-believing church here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. It is all over this town, all over the city, Father, your gospel is being proclaimed and your word is being read. And your people are hearing uh, your, your words from the Bible that your kingdom would grow here, that righteousness and justice and mercy would be the coin of the realm in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon, that you would allow all of our churches together, but I pray especially for St. James this morning, that you would allow us to be a burning beacon, a colony of your new creation here, a place where righteousness dwells and where love and hope and peace are just the way things are by the power of your gospel. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are the sovereign, loving God who's invited us into your throne room and called us your daughters and sons and called yourself our Father. And you hear our prayers and you answer our prayers according to your will. And so we come in here boldly, bringing these prayers before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Confess your faith, if you would, with me, with the words of the Nicene Creed. This is found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Remember the first Corinthians 12 reading where we're reading about all the different gifts, but only one spirit. When we're in Christian community, all the different gifts come together by the power of that one spirit to unite us to the one Jesus. And that's what we call the body of Christ. And the way to experience that is in community. So look around, find somebody that you're not close to or somebody you've never met before and start working on that relationship. That's where we find the body of Christ. Go in peace.